Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Easy Conversations, a podcast about having easy conversations. I'm your host, Furkan Dandia. In this week's episode, I sit down with Melissa Noyce. Melissa is a therapist based in the UK, and she specializes in the area of absent fathers. In this episode, Melissa shares her own experience of growing up without a father figure in her life. Uh, We also touch on the importance of fathers in the lives of children. And we we also talk about uh, not only is it crucial for fathers to be uh, present physically in the lives of their children, but also emotionally and mentally. And we touch on a few very important concepts when it comes to the idea of absent fathers. I hope you can get a lot out of this episode. If at the end you could leave a review, I would truly appreciate it. Well, Melissa, thanks for joining the podcast today. Um, You know, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, Super grateful for you to come here and share your own message and some of the work you're doing. Uh, You know, we've touched on some of the things around the uh, area of therapy you're doing, but... uh, you know, we'll, we'll get into that. Obviously, I, I just wanted to give you an opportunity, first of all, to introduce yourself and, you know, some of the work you're doing. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. Um, love being on a podcast. I've not done this before. So this is great experience for me. Um, uh, so yeah, my name is Melissa, and I am a therapist here in the UK. Um, I predominantly work with young people, particularly young people of divorced parents. And my journey kind of started when I was 12 years old. Uh, My dad left um, the family home. It was his choice. And we had a okay relationship. You know, I saw him on weekends and sort of in the week, that kind of thing. Um, But my dad is an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. um, So that was quite challenging to manage. And it wasn't until my early 20s actually that I accepted him being an alcoholic um I suppose as a child it was quite normalized I didn't recognize it but our relationship became quite difficult when I was about 18 19 and he made the decision to end our relationship so he's still alive um, but I haven't seen him for about 10 years um so it's kind of really drawn me to the absence of fathers mm-hmm. in people's lives but it's worth noting that I am you know a daughter who doesn't have a father in her life but I am also a therapist and when I put that kind of hat on I have to think to myself that you know my dad's an alcoholic um, there's some form of mental health going on there and I'm often torn between kind of the two sides to me um, which kind of draws me into like men's mental health and kind of what's going on for men because it seems to be quite a common pattern that's evolving um, you know in society I don't know if that you know it's the same for in Canada or the wider world but certainly in the UK you know absent fathers is quite a common thing to happen Mm -hmm. Um, so it's that's kind of where it's brought me to really Um, you know working with people who's dads have left but I guess I have a stopping point uh, because men tend not to want to work with me whether that's because I'm female I'm young I'm not relatable Um, but certainly for me it's something that I would like to work with Um, there are boundaries there because there is what we call transference Mm -hmm. 
where men can trigger certain things in me, but you know, I'm quite aware of that. So I'd be able to assess the situation before I, I agree to work with someone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, it's important to mention the transference because that is, uh, as, a, as a therapist, it's an important thing to be aware of, but we often get that trigger in our day-to-day -day lives, right? People say things to trigger a reaction in us and we don't often know why <laughs> we are reacting. Um, I guess for listeners, like I know I've had a lot of guests from the UK on this podcast. Um, where exactly in the UK are you based? So I am in um, the southern part of the UK, uh, an area called Southampton. Mm -hmm. um, it's a quite a small city, uh, but yeah, it's it's quite mm -hmm. well populated, I guess. Um, yeah. Maybe not compared to Canada or the <laughs> USA. But <laughs> yeah. There's certainly a lot of people here. Yeah. Uh, and the demographics of the population are very different um, within Southampton, you know, mm -hmm. between um, sort of the poorer sides and the richer sides, as, as of everywhere. Yeah. Um, and I, I talk about demographics purely because in, you know, I look into research, into, you know, why absent fathers becomes so apparent uh, and demographics does seem to come into it as much as I hate working with statistics and I hate labeling anything, mm -hmm. um, it, you know, I always do fall back to the research because it's factual information and it gives me what I'm looking for. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the research does represent something. And, and I guess the reason why I asked is, and as I mentioned, I've had many, uh, people come on this podcast that are based in the UK and based on the conversations I've had, it sounds like there, there is a bit more advancement in terms of the conversations that are taking place when it comes to men's mental health. It sounds like the UK is a little bit more advanced than some of the other places, especially in Canada. We are starting to talk about it more, but it's almost still like in its infancy in a way, like there is more conversation around men's mental health and, and uh, the, the, the societal pressures that men face in terms of keeping things in a box or closed up and, and not sharing it. So I, I think it's a really important topic to discuss, especially in the world we're living in right now with the pandemic where there's, potential for additional pressures. And I know you mentioned demographics because in most cases uh, still in a lot of households, uh, the men are expected to, to kind of provide for the family. And yeah. right now with, with the pandemic, there's additional stressors around uh, job security, um, being at home, taking care of kids when you're not used to it. Um, yeah. So there's a lot going on. And I think we really need to encourage everyone to speak up, uh, obviously in a healthy way, but really start talking about some of the struggles. So um, I guess in the work you've been doing, um, what have you been noticing? And like, what, what, is, what are some of the challenges men face when it comes to their mental health? Um, so you're exactly right. Men's mental health is huge in the UK at the moment, and it is getting a lot of, I suppose, coverage in the media about men speaking up about how they're feeling. Um, and, you know, I, I'm definitely on board with that and would encourage any man to kind of speak up, mm -hmm. you know, when they're feeling low or whatever that may be. It's OK to share that information. 
Um, you know, in Britain, it is very much about the stiff upper lip. And I think that does go part and parcel into certainly in the UK about men, you know, not talking about their mental health, because you're right, they are, we call them kind of the breadwinners over here. And they're the ones that have to bring all of the money in and support their family. Um, and I think that's something that's quite huge for men. And I think it's very much a generational thing. Um, sort of past generations it was very much about the man going out you know doing their hard stay graft and coming back and having to help the wife of their kids and you know and that kind of thing um, but that's changing now and women are you know going to work and men are staying home and looking after the children so that's kind of completely flipped it round um, but the, the interesting thing is is about feminism and the rise in feminism and you know, whilst I'm a female myself and I'm all about girl power, there is an element of it becoming a bit unbalanced um, and men feeling like they're not able to speak up because mm -hmm. they may be perceived as not allowing a female to um, sort of explore her emotions or what's going on for her. Um, so sometimes I feel like men get a little bit lost in mm -hmm. that or forgotten um, and we're supposed to be encouraging them to speak up but also encouraging females to speak up and it's getting that kind of balance right mm -hmm. yeah no for sure and i guess you mentioned something around um having the challenges of men being able to open up to you and and you know if i was being completely honest five or six years ago if i was seeing a female therapist um i would struggle to be able to open up to. Um, it's only through the work I've done that I'm a lot more comfortable having those conversations, but not everyone's there yet. So what are some things you do to enable, um, you know, some of the clients you may have to be able to share? Or what are some things that um, other therapists can do uh, to help men be more vulnerable or just open to, to sharing? So working with men, particularly men my own age, um, I very much pick up on or at least keep in the back of my mind who I am to them, whether I'm being perceived as their mother, um, mm -hmm. their daughter, their sister, their wife, mm -hmm. um, whoever that female you know, figure is in their life, there can be, it goes back to that transference. Mm -hmm. It's who, who I am for them. Um, so I often try and pick up on that and you know, keep it on the back burner or the back seat, if you like. So throughout our sessions, I'm just aware of it. And if it does come up, then obviously I'll bring it in to the session to kind of explore those relationships. Um, so they can just get a bit more self-awareness around how it's impacting them. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is about emotions. I often find sometimes men can't identify, you know, what exactly they're feeling. Mm -hmm. They, you know, get told about, you know, about anxiety and about anger and about sadness, but what does it actually feel like? And it's connecting those physical sensations to that label, labeled emotion. Um, so for example, with anxiety, it's about recognizing that it can give you sweaty palms and the butterfly feelings in your stomach and a dry mouth. And those physical symptoms can really connect with that feeling, that label, um, which can help them identify what's coming up for them. Mm -hmm. And it's, giving them time to process that. Uh, so if, if they're hyper aroused, which is often about, you know, talking really quickly, um, not pausing for a breath, it's, it's slowing them down and getting them to take a pause 
so they can really feel what's going on for them in that moment which can then allow them to you know take that into the outside of our sessions and practice that in their everyday relationships Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah no and those are all useful tips um i guess uh, probably a more challenging question um so how do you so i know we talked about like the counter transference from a a therapist perspective um and you said you're you're mindful of that so in the event you feel like something your client is seeing is triggering triggering something in you how are you able to um hold yourself accountable and and kind of in that moment be able to not react um and and i guess for me i'm curious because as an aspiring aspiring therapist uh, you know, those are things I would need to work on as well myself in the future. I think um, just being aware of it, you know, it is a massive challenge for me and I'm not going to deny that. I tend to avoid working with, you know, particularly older men, um, if especially if they've got an alcohol problem. It's just something I know I will find really hard. Mm-hmm. And it, I'm okay with saying that because I'm human and, you know, everybody's got their own thing going on. But in the moment, for me, if something comes up, I often, in my mind, physically see myself picking it up and putting it to the side. And having that visualisation in my head reminds myself of where I am, like, in the moment. I'm a gestalt therapist, so I I call it in the here and now. Um, And and kind of just trying to connect with them by physically parking that to the side. Um, And my supervisor is amazing. I I always give her a call if, if something's you know, troubling me or um, I'm worried about something and she often calms me down or reassures me that I'm, I'm doing the right thing. Yeah, and I think that that is also important in our day-to-day lives because there are things that, you know, people we're in relationships with, whether it's our friends or our partners, they're going to say something that may trigger something inside of us and being aware of it in the moment as hard as it can be is is an important mm-hmm. quality to have and i think that can apply to even our relationships with our parents or our children um, um so i guess you know uh going back to the conversation you had about your your father your own experience and the whole concept of absent fathers um Mm -hmm. you know like i wanted to delve into that a little bit and as 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 i've mentioned to you for me it's relatable because i'm a single father Mm -hmm. and um you know i mean i've obviously tried to stay um in my child's life but it, it is difficult at times because you're sharing that time or you're getting weekends and it is difficult. So it's finding that right balance um, because you also want to consider what's in the best interest of the child. And, mm-hmm. you know, as, as it is important to get that time with each parent, but sometimes um, it's, it's not always the best thing for the child and being mindful of that. So um, from kind of looking at it from both perspectives, what are your thoughts and, and some of the work you've done in that field? What are some things you can share? So as a daughter, you know, I know how important it is to have a dad in your life. I could have easily have gone out and, you know, been a therapist that completely slated absent fathers and fathers that choose not to be in their child's life. Um, But if anything, I recognise the importance of it because he's not in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, dads are there to, you know, teach their children about risk and 
get them to see the world differently and build those relationships with men, regardless of whether they're a boy or a girl. Um, and as a daughter, I kind of missed out on that and had to figure out that for myself because mm-hmm. he wasn't really there or, you know, what he brought to my life was quite toxic. Mm-hmm. I think the important thing is to never compare yourself to anyone. Um, I certainly don't. I know that there's lots of daughters out there that have got absent fathers, but I know that their their relationships will be very different to the ones that I have with my dad. Um I think the uniqueness of the relationship that I have with my dad is that I have seen him. Um, He's walked past me in the street and he knows exactly who I am because he makes eye contact with me, but he chooses not to speak to me. Um, So it's sometimes like seeing a walking ghost, Mm -hmm. uh, which is quite a bizarre experience. Um, And not everyone will will have that in their life. whether that's through distance or, or how they handle it, it, it will always be individual. Um, I, when I was a child, I, I just wanted a, a relationship with my dad. That's, that's all I wanted. I didn't care what that looked like. I didn't care how much money he spent. I just wanted his time. That was it. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, I feel like that's more invaluable than <clears throat> anything else. Um, but as a therapist, you know, I work with a lot of young people whose parents aren't together. Um, and again, it, it always goes back to them just wanting to spend that quality time with their father. Um, and the, the one thing that always comes up is they desperately want their parents back together. Uh, but it's, it's reassuring them that it's okay to feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's never well I'd say never but it's it's likely that's never going to happen but it's about building the bridge between both parents so it doesn't feel so big Mm -hmm. Um, and they feel like they're able to transition from mum and dad a lot smoother um, than than they were at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah and I think some of the work I've done, uh, whether it's talking to other people, because uh, I've also have a lot of friends who whose parents had separated and they've given me a lot of advice from their perspective, which has been helpful. I think as parents where you're separated and you're sharing children, one of the biggest things to be mindful of is not ever, well, I don't want to say ever, but being mindful of not putting pressure on the children to ever choose between either parent or making them feel guilty for wanting to spend time with one of the parents because there's going to be times where you know even my son he may just want to hang out with me uh for whatever reason and you know just being mindful that you either don't take advantage of that or or make uh that child feel guilty for that because then they're feeling that pressure of having to choose and most of my friends have given me the advice that they do have hold resentment for their parents when they grow up because they felt like they had to choose. Um, Yeah, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. That's exactly right. Um, You know, working with young people, they often say that they they would hate to have to choose. Um, Mm -hmm. Even when, you know, you're giving them the scenario of kind of which house you're more comfortable in. And they even find difficulty in telling me to begin with because it's almost like they're telling their parent that they're in the room with them when they're talking about it. It's that real for them. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it's always goes back to not wanting to upset either of them it's, it's being felt like they're in the middle and they're being pulled in both directions so mm-hmm. you're exactly right it's, it's not putting pressure on that child and if they want to spend time you know with one parent and not the other it, you know it's going to change it, it will always ebb and flow as as feelings do mm-hmm. and then they there may be no real reason as to why they do that um it's just something that they want to do and it's respecting their own boundaries really as much as you know they're trying to understand yours at the same time yeah yeah and i think again for me it's important in that sense you know because again we on one end we talk about absent fathers and on the other end uh for me like someone who who's trying to be present in his son's life um i think it's as I mentioned, finding that balance of, okay, well, um, I don't want, if he tells me he doesn't want to come see me on a weekend, for example, it's being mindful of not putting that pressure on him. Because as much as I'm like, okay, well, it's important for him to spend time with his father and have that relationship. And I want to see him at the same time, it's finding that balance of, okay, what's the best for him in this given moment and like you said it does change from time to time but i think as parents we also have to be and again it's it's maybe the concept of transference but being mindful of our egos and Mm -hmm. and take not taking it personally um because and for me the biggest um thing i've tried to focus on is treat my son as not as a child when it comes to stuff like that and telling him what he needs to do or what he should do or what's important for him. It's treating him like as, uh, as an individual and mm-hmm. giving him the freedom to make choices and, and have an opinion. And um, I just want to make sure other parents are mindful of that because I think it is important. And, uh, you know, again, I want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, completely. And you know depending on the child's age I often work with sort of 11 um, upwards so you know below that age I'm sure it may be very different Mm -hmm. but certainly for the teenage kind of category or or 11 years and above um, they're at that age where they they're classed as a child but they also know what they want at that moment in time and it is about respecting that within them and you know if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and about reaching that self-actualization mm-hmm. for them when parents split their basic need kind of kind of gets whipped out from underneath them you know that security of a home and um, that love and food and all of that kind of comes into it because financially when, when parents divorce there is that element that comes into it um, and the child does worry about are they going to stay in the same house so they have going to have to move there's so much going on for them in that moment it is about being patient with them um, and respecting them as an individual like you say and it is it is difficult because like you mentioned you have to kind of put your ego aside Mm -hmm. and recognize that they are another human being that's being you know impacted by that choice that Mm -hmm. both of you have decided to make or or one or the other Um, and you know that's okay yeah yeah and i think one of the things that i you know that have worked for me or i i hope it's working <laughs> but uh it, it, you're not going to get it right 100 percent right. of the time and and you know there's times where i do feel like i say things or do things uh where i've let my ego get in the way mm-hmm. um but 
you know, it's being, again, recognizing that and then having that conversation with my son. So if I've let my ego make a choice and I've reacted and, you know, whether it's anger or uh, sadness, I always kind of take that moment to come back to him and be like, hey, you know what, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. And I've learned from this. And again, it's you're treating the child as an individual where you're giving them that apology. And for them, they feel comfortable that, you know, my parent um, is being vulnerable, and they're accepting their mistake. And it's come to the point now where, you know, my son, he's, he's seven and a half, but he's comfortable enough pointing it out in me where he'll call me out and um I appreciate that because I have you know I've enabled that for him that he should feel comfortable pointing it out in me or calling me out so I can recognize it and apologize and that is that is huge and that is incredible actually um in modeling a great relationship there because you're right you know humans aren't perfect i'm not perfect mm-hmm. and none of us are and we all have flaws we're never going to get things right and as a parent if you're able to kind of show them that you know i'm i'm capable of owning up to when i've got things wrong um and when i've done things to you that wasn't okay it just gives them permission to recognize that they can be vulnerable Mm-hmm. and feel safe with other people when they're like that and know when to leave that person when it's not safe you're teaching them all of those great skills that they're going to need later in life and I think that's yeah I think that's an amazing relationship that you've got there with your son with, with everything that you're doing mm-hmm. thanks yeah and I mean I think going back to some of the things you were talking about and I guess um, maybe something on a personal note for you um, Obviously, you know, you've realized that the fact that your father doesn't want to have a relationship with you has nothing to do with you. Mm-hmm. It's more his own thing, right? Like, I mean, you almost, in any situation when someone treats you a certain way, you, you almost need to step out of it as hard as it can be, but have compassion for that person in a sense that it must be so difficult. Like, to be able to walk past your child and not acknowledge them like you must be really suffering to be not to to not be able to do that and you know yeah. as you mentioned that it took you many years to get to that realization but i guess what i want to understand is um when did you get to that realization and how did you get there so i've had probably about 6 years of therapy many different therapists Mm -hmm. Um, and my last one was a male and I purposely chose a male therapist because I needed to have or build a relationship with a man because I hadn't um, done so you know I've had boyfriends and things like that Mm -hmm. um, but I'd never had an older man um, relationship Um, and it, it it impacted me in weird ways like with my manager at work before I even started my counseling journey and I know the counselling, you know, diploma and the qualifications that I've got has obviously helped me a long way into the space that I'm in today. But for me, it was very much about therapy. Um, that's the only thing that got me to recognise that, yes, he does actually have mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also important to recognise that there is still the daughter in me, because if I don't validate those feelings, then I'm not validating the pain and the suffering that other children are going through with their absent father um 
and it you know I've seen my dad many times um face to face and he's walked past me and not spoken to me and that that's tough Mm -hmm. I'm not going to deny that um I disassociate quite a lot when I go past him but I think that's just a protective thing that that I've put in place um but I I do recognize that he has got mental health but he never he never admitted that to me and has never been vulnerable with me Mm -hmm. um so what you've done with your son my dad didn't do that I kind of it took me years to to figure that out myself but had he been open and honest from the start I often wonder kind of where our relationship would actually be today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and again, I think it's hard to be able to kind of disassociate yourself because at the end of the day, you're still his daughter, but it's more, again, it's not a reflection on you. It's more a reflection on him in terms of he's not there yet, or he hasn't been able to uh, be vulnerable to be able to recognize those things and, he may never, right? But uh-huh. um, I guess along those lines, like how do you, you know, deal with that? And what kind of advice do you have for other people who ha- are who so badly want their parents in their lives, or whether it's one parent or both, um, but they can't? Uh, yeah, like how do you do that? Um, for me, you know, it took me a long time again to discover that what I was going through was grief because there's no although I don't like working with labels sometimes I do find them helpful um you know for me it was grief and trauma that I had been through and you know being just knowing those labels helped me kind of delve into you know readings and books and things on on what people go through when they're grieving and when they're going through trauma and it helped me understand myself a bit better Mm -hmm. um that was really useful and you know, the pain that I feel for my dad is never going to go away. It's the same with grief. I always kind of look at it as a box and inside that box is my grief and it's, it's a ball mm-hmm. and there's a button in the box. And every time I shake it, that ball sometimes hits that button for me. Mm-hmm. And that could be the pain that I'm feeling for, you know, the loss of my dad, or it could be the triggers that I have when I'm interacting with men. And, but that, that ball does get smaller over time. So when you shake the box, it doesn't hit that button as much. And being able to understand and remember that also does help me. I'm never going to have a relationship with him. I know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've kind of just accepted it. And this is going to sound really weird, but I actually work in bereavement care at um, mm-hmm. sort of a large acute hospital. The reason I got into that job... I think unconsciously is because I was waiting for my dad to kind of die and appear on you know the records as deceased and sometimes I feel like I'm in that job just waiting for his name to come through because it feels like it would actually be easier for him to die than to talk about him not wanting to be in my life mm-hmm. it feels more socially acceptable um so if, for him to die would actually make my life easier. And that sounds awful, but mm-hmm. that's kind of the realness of being a fatherless daughter. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it is hard, right? And I know, like you said, it does sound awful, but I mean, if you were to break it down, um, it's, you know, you've got this person in your life who you know exists, but they're basically, you know, no better than 
being dead, right? Like essentially they're, they're yeah. not alive, right? <laughs> from, exactly. from your perspective. So, I mean, I understand that um, and, and it must be difficult. And I, I guess, you know, along the lines of like, you know, being able to, like you said, you've accepted it. It, it is like grief, um, you know, I guess for other people, because there's situations where, you know, you may even have a relationship with your parents or one mm-hmm. parent and they still may not be present. Yeah. And how do people deal with something like that where, you know, like um, you, you have a relationship with your parents, but they're just not present in your life. Um, they're just preoccupied with maybe whether it's other siblings or other things and they're just not present or they just don't know anything that goes on in your life, um, which is almost like, the same thing I would say um but yeah I don't know yeah being emotionally unavailable Mm -hmm. is kind of what I'd refer that yeah um and yeah that does happen as well um for me it's about exploring kind of their pain and actually validating that pain that they're feeling that they're not being recognized and what I often comes up for me is about being the invisible child um and not being seen or heard And then you can kind of go into people pleasing um, sort of mannerisms and ways of being in everyday life, because sometimes people pleasing is what gets you the attention. uh, Mm -hmm. And that's quite common um, in that kind of situation. They call it fawning. Uh, It's actually a trauma response because it can be traumatic um, Mm -hmm. for a parent not to receive that emotional um, availability. Uh, so it's for me it's about recognizing actually really hearing that pain that they're going through it's also about building up their resilience um, and recognizing that they are their own person and they can control how they react to their parent but they can't control how their parent is going to be towards them mm-hmm. so if the parent is just going to choose to be emotionally unavailable because they don't want to see Um, or they they just don't understand how they're being Um, it's really about that person finding a way to deal with that and sometimes it is about separating them off uh, and seeing them as an individual and not part of their parents Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no and that's really helpful because I mean I think that's equally important in a way because there are situations like that right and um, most more often the parents aren't emotionally available, as you mentioned, and just being mindful of that, but also, you know, recognizing that and not repeating those patterns for our children, right? Yeah. So recognizing how difficult it was, um, and it doesn't give you the uh, the free for all to repeat that behavior or those behaviors for for your children, right? So learning yeah. from that. And it really highlights the importance of, you know, validating their pain. So those patterns don't go on to kind of repeat themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, there's always a little bit of a taboo with children um, separating themselves from their parents. And I suppose there is a bit, it's the same with parents separating themselves from their children. Um, it goes both ways, but, you know, children get older and they become adults. And then when they're an adult, they have a choice and they don't have to be in that parent's life you know, no matter how difficult it is, they still have that choice. Um, and everybody has choices. It's just kind of what they would want to do with that. Mm-hmm. And some people forget that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I, uh, I think that definitely makes sense. Um, I guess, in terms of like, the whole 
uh, area of work you're doing and with especially with absent fathers um, what are some of the other things you're doing and what's kind of on the horizon for the future um, and and what kind of like ideas you can share with people that are kind of in a similar situation as yours and that are struggling like yeah I think talk to people whether it's your friend a family member that you trust a teacher at school you know um, a colleague whoever that may be I suppose just starting that conversation if you've never done it before is kind of opening that Pandora's box mm -hmm. but it's really about taking baby steps you don't have to jump into therapy straight away if that's not right for you I know therapy is quite normalized now mm -hmm. um but, you know, just having those small conversations with people is quite valuable, really. Um, on the horizon, um, I don't have a clear plan. It's, I'm definitely starting to unpick, you mm -hmm. know, little bits about men's mental health and about kind of where this all started, really. Mm -hmm. um, certainly from a generational point of view, but also, you know, men actually becoming fathers. Like, was it their choice? Um, of course, again, it goes back to choice. They always have a choice, but... You know, sometimes they land themselves in situations and paternal mental health uh, is quite important to me. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think going back to the beginning um, is a good place to start. Yeah, yeah. And I, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, you touched on one thing that's important because there's often the the whole concept of choice, right? And and some sometimes uh, whether it's men or women, they don't have a choice. Um, of becoming a parent and you know they almost have to take on that responsibility and they may not be ready so there mm -hmm. is that aspect of it um, there's the additional aspect which I don't know if that's something you've covered is is having the choice and then taking on that role but realizing you weren't actually ready and uh -huh. that I'm sure has its own mental health implications yeah and also again the taboo around it the people cringing a bit I suppose with the fact that did you just say that that mm -hmm. you had a child and you you weren't ready for a child when actually that is the reality of life some people have children and they're like I wasn't ready for this mm -hmm. and that's okay you know there's, there's nothing wrong with that um mm -hmm. you, again you have a choice of how you deal with that whether you want to explore the emotion or not it's just mm -hmm. a being open and honest about how you feel with people that you trust. Yeah, and I think, again, to normalize this conversation, it is, I mean, having, let's be real, like, I mean, having a baby, like I've gone through it, like having a newborn in your family or your home is stressful. And mm -hmm. and if, you know, like losing your job or uh, like, or any other form of stress in your life, if you can talk about it and seek therapy, childbirth is, very similar it is a stressful situation your your sleeping patterns change your your mm -hmm. lifestyle changes your relationships change everything changes it, it is um i mean as as you know I, again it's how you frame it you know obviously having a child come into your life is a blessing but at the same time it does create stress and there's nothing wrong with admitting that and taking ownership um but you're right there is that taboo around it or or shaming in terms of well mm -hmm. you know and and everyone's experience is different too like some people have 
uh, you know, a positive experience or some people don't have such a difficulty with a newborn and others have far more difficulties. So it's understanding and, and being aware that everyone's situation is different and not to pass judgment in those cases. Yeah, and parenting has become a bit glamorized, as particularly on social media or on TV. It's you know, it looks all wonderful with the child and the picture, and mm-hmm. but you don't really get to see you know behind what that really looks like until you're in that situation, and then you think, well, this doesn't match up to what I've seen mm-hmm. on social media, and then it makes you feel like you're not allowed to feel that way, you know. And I know it is starting to be more normalized, but for me, it's just about keeping things simple. Um, and just starting off by having those basic conversations and kind of seeing where it goes from there, really. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's very important. And I think having conversations like this uh, definitely helps. Um, it's helped me. Um, I'm sure people listening, it will help them. Um, but mm-hmm. again, it's just being aware of uh, of some of the challenges you may have and and just being able to openly speak about it. And I think that's kind of the underlying theme with men's mental health as well is, is just feeling, um, you know, having that freedom of speaking up and, and just asking for help. Um, That's something I've been trying to normalize and encourage people to do because it is important. Um, And the key, the key thing I keep repeating is, um, you know, if you don't ask for help, you're suffering alone and you can you know it's not going to get any better if you continue to suffer alone exactly and it is keeping it you know I know I say it's simple I guess for me it is simple talking about your feelings but I understand for men that can be incredibly hard because they don't know what those feelings are Um, Mm -hmm. but just having that discussion of like hey something's not right at the moment can I just have five minutes of your time Mm -hmm. and just seeing where that conversation goes um, and it can open up avenues for them to be able to talk about how they're feeling and start normalizing it. Yeah. Um, there's, there's not many male therapists out there in the UK. It's, they're quite hard to find. Um, yeah. so I know it's easier talking to men. If you do find a good one, go for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, you know, there's also lots of great female therapists out there as well. If they ever felt they would be able to do that at some point. Yeah, yeah. And I feel it's the same over here. Um, I haven't come across many male therapists. So um, I think it's really just personally, uh, you know, my experience can be different from others. But for me, it's really that rewiring that needs to take place from a kind of neurological perspective. But basically, it's reminding myself over and over and over again, that there's nothing wrong with me expressing my feelings. And I often get caught in the trap myself where, you know, if I'm in a situation where I'm hurt, or I'm feeling like I, I haven't been heard, I often respond with silence or just keeping it to myself. And again, it's it's that suffering I choose for myself of suffering alone Um, but you know it's unfortunate because the only person who suffers is me yeah and um, but it's like it's almost like we're hardwired that way and just Mm -hmm. having those conversations and taking those risks of opening up can change that and and um, having that community of people that you can go and talk to it's it's kind of um changing habits as well like you know one client said to me recently about when he brings up feelings to a male colleague 
um, he uses a phrase of this sounds a bit gay, but mm-hmm. and then goes on to say how he feels. Mm-hmm. And you know, he said, even saying that, why he said, why do I do that? Yeah. And you know, it's really recognizing that that's that culture within men of having to kind of talk about their feelings and feeling like it's a feminist or you know, female way of doing it, like it's not right or it's not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, when actually it's he doesn't need to say that first phrase. You know, just saying how he's feeling is okay. It's yeah. it's as simple as that. Um, I, I know I keep saying the word simple, and I know it's not that easy for men. I know it's incredibly hard. Yeah. Um, but it is just about having those really initial conversations, even just getting to know someone Absolutely. and whether you trust them or not. For sure, yeah, and and avoiding the labeling, like you said earlier, right? When we start labeling things that, oh, this might sound weird, or this may sound like uh-huh. this, you've already labeled it in your mind. It's not, it's not what the other person's going to think. It's what you're projecting it to be. So yeah. just, yeah, I mean, if you just go in with the mindset that this is completely normal, then you don't need to label it or, or exactly. <laughs> qualify the statement. So uh, again, it is easier said than done um, because I can personally attest that I do struggle myself, even though I talk about it. Um, I, I struggle myself. And the, the only thing I can say or words of advice I can pass is continue to remind yourself and stick with it. It's like any bad habit um, that you're trying to get rid of it requires a lot of work and practice and that's the only way it gets better yeah and if people you don't get the response that you're looking for in the first try you know don't let that be the overriding experience every time you have those conversations Mm -hmm. you know the next time you speak to someone you may well have a very different experience and it's reminding yourself of that as well Mm -hmm. for sure for sure and Again, like I want to thank you, Melissa, for coming on here and sharing your own story. Uh, I appreciate it. And thank you for, I mean, all the kind of the wisdom you've shared. I think, you know, I've learned a lot and I hope others uh, do as well. Um, For for people that want to find you on social media or or get a hold of you, what's kind of the best way to do that? Um, The best way would just be to find my Instagram account, which is not another therapist. Um, Because there's so many of us out there. I thought it was a great way of, (laughs) um, yeah, finding myself out from the many. Um, So, yeah, you can find me on Instagram that way. Amazing. Well, thank you again, Melissa. I truly appreciate it. Well, that's the end of the episode. Thank you again for tuning in and uh, showing your support. Until next week.